Hello, and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point is, if in fact there are no point at all. Please, if you like what you hear, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Um, today, it is Monday, August 3rd. This week, we're going to be talking mostly about the U.S.-China relationship. Today, we have regulars Dr. Benjamin Sally. <laughs> Hello. And we have future Senator Dan Beckshaw. Can I actually also go by Dr. Dan Beckshaw? I do have a no. doctorate of jurisprudence. And we have our guest panel this week is uh, composed of human rights expert Salah Husseini. Hello. And we have UChicago 55-meter dash record holder Bill Chang. What's good? <laughs> and we have aircraft enthusiast and cat daddy Nicholas Rodman. Yeah, howdy. <laughs> so... To start, I just wanted to talk about how this week, um, we talked briefly last week about how our government moved to shutter the Houston consulate, and now the Chinese government has seized the U.S. consulate in Shenzhou, China. There, the tit-for-tat continues further, as the Treasury Department has now imposed sanctions on a part of the Chinese government called the Bingtuan, which is a, it's sort of like, it's like a government within the government that runs the western part of China. It also is the part that controls farms in the Xinjiang province. That's where this Uyghur community there's a lot of um, reporting on re-education camps in that northwest region. Um, the Western governments call them basically like concentration camps, but the Chinese government claims there's something like assimilation schools. Either way, it's caused a huge amount of controversy, and that is on the backdrop of Hong Kong's protests and like the disintegration of the two-state system. And now there's increased battles over control of the South China Sea, and uh, and then also now we've got the whole TikTok ban that seems to be looming from Trump. So, okay, that's the background that I wanted to start with. And then I, I also want to think about sort of three main points, and then we can open it up. But the, the first one is we've talked multiple times about how the coronavirus has revealed sort of how intertwined U.S. and China is. So a larger question of how effective are something like sanctions or tariffs in general, considering it feels like that's, or a lot of economists, it seems like, say that that's just an added tax to American consumers. And then on these geopolitical issues of like the Uyghurs in the South China Sea, I wanted to bring up how the U.S. has never become a signee to something called the Rome Statute of the U.N. International Criminal Court. So they basically can't, none of these crimes against humanity that we sort of lobby at other countries, it's impossible to litigate them under the current system. And then on a similar note, in 1982, there was something called the Convention of the Law and Sea Agreement, which 167 nations have since signed on to. The U.S. refuses to sign on to, and that would be the place where you would assumably uh, arbitrate things in the South China Sea. Seems impossible for that to happen in the current state of where the U.N. is. So, okay, that is the background I'm starting with. I'd like to open up with Salah. If you have, would you correct me if I said anything wrong? You, you would, I would assume, be the most knowledgeable on all these subjects. Uh. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, no, it all sounds uh, all sounds pretty accurate. Uh, I mean, the ICC and our non-ratification is pretty interesting. We, I think we we were initially sort of supporters of the ICC, but then never ratified, and so uh, support the concept in principle, but not in practice. Um, and and are you know haven't participated in in the ICC and. I think I think it was in 2002 that the Bush administration decided to not uh, not ratify. I, 
I think the ICC is maybe one of the perfect examples of the failures of the Bush presidency, maybe of both Bush presidencies. But you had this era where the U.S. could take the leadership for the world in the post-Soviet era, and then the Bush leadership said, actually, we'd like to lead but not be held accountable, which is, I think, the motto of the Republican Party, lead but not be held accountable. And so we obviously never signed on to the ICC, and now we've gone so far as to the outrageous thing of saying, if the ICC wants to investigate us, we're going to sanction the officials of the ICC, which is absolutely insane, and just says, okay, we don't believe in freedom and democracy and the rule of law if we are not supporting an international court that was mostly a U.S. idea, and because we should be above it, and it's absolutely insane, and so we have, don't, I, I mean, it came up this week, President Trump calls to delay the election in November, and then the next day they delay the Hong Kong election, and we have no foot to stand on because the Republicans want to lead but not be held accountable. It's insane. Nick, what do you think? Uh, well, first of all, there's, there's a lot. Um, a I lot of apologizing the Republican Party needs that. to do to America. That's what happens. Wait, what? No, I, I A lot of apologizing Dan. the Republican all Party. All right, all right. Calm down, Dan. I, I, um, I don't, you know, obviously I'm opposed to delaying this election. We've held presidential elections during the Civil War. We could hold an election this November. That being said, going back to the ICC, you know, obviously its intent was a positive one to hold people who committed human rights abuses, grave human rights abuses in tyrannical regimes responsible. But uh, if I recall, the reasoning for the Bush administration's refusal to adhere to the ICC was partly because of a Spanish judge named Balthazar Garzon, who was pressing, wanted to indict essentially the entire Bush administration's foreign policy the confirmable office holders, and including going back to folks in the Nixon administration as well, including Henry Kissinger and the like, which I think was unacceptable and made a mockery of the ICC. Under did that, it though? Did it though? I think it did. Torture under, should be under illegal. That, under his scruple, if you were to apply his standards, which I think are ridiculous and preposterous, and I think not motiv motivated by justice, but by uh, an anti-American sentiment, I think you would literally hold every single European, major European power under the same standards and indict them for war crimes. Charles de Gaulle, uh, okay, wait, This is an interesting point, because I keep wondering what a practical step forward for... There, there seems to be a sort of a standoff between the values of one side and the values of the other, where there seems to be a gap between how people perceive their actions and what they are perceived on the other side of things. So... Would, what is a step forward? Is there some sort of, like, does someone from the U.S. or the Western governments need to proactively go in front of some committee or, you know, speak? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do we stop from a point of, okay, this is how the system is totally fucked up and doesn't work, to this is how we get the gears churning a little bit more? Well, isn't, wouldn't that be on the ICC? I mean, under if you're going to accuse the Bush administration, I mean— I, I'm pretty sure Balthazar Garzon would have gone after Obama for drone drone strikes in Pakistan and Yemen. I mean, also I, the right I decision. Those also the strikes. right decision. Killing people and killing American citizens without due process is a violation of their fundamental human rights. You're all right. You're Anwar al Awlaki was in the sub, southern tribal regions of Yemen. You think that we're going to pull pull him over in like a traffic stop and read him as Miranda rights? As a U.S. citizen, he deserves that right. Okay, so I, yeah. What about what about he was actively plotting against more than Anwar al Awlaki killed by by drone strikes? Right, the number of number of civilians killed not just in Yemen but in many other places around the world by the drone operations was 
was in, in the thousands. And there, there needs to be some accountability for those types of operations. Uh, there is. There, there is it, within the Department of Defense, but none of, but none of the, like for example, none of the Obama administration officials in, involved in the in the drone program were ever held accountable for that. And I think, I think, I think the argument for the ICC is that it's it's supranational, so that the, the you know the court systems that fail to prosecute those people involved in the drone program, um, there's something higher than the U.S. you know justice system that would uh, that would hold those officials accountable. Okay, so to pivot to just how using the ICC or what is, what sort of, let's say the U.S. has the has a fair complaint about the Uyghur population or there needs to be something done about it. What is the first step in a bureaucratic process of addressing that concern? Is there one? It just seems like we just, you just shout across one another. You throw, you know, diatribes at each other across the ocean. Well, my, can I interrupt? My sure. uh, wife says that I shouldn't raise my voice, and I'm obnoxious when I fight with her, and so I'm being obnoxious right now. Okay. So Nick, you have to speak in a calm voice. Okay. I, I feel like I was—I wasn't obnoxious? raising my voice. I was just being forceful for fun, for fundamental human rights. But I think Seth, to answer your question, I think we could use the powers of the mythical CIA that is always there to spy on us. Why don't we just take drone videos? Use instead of killing people with drones, take drone videos of what's going on in China and just publish it. That's they're militarily impossible. Why is it impossible? Because they have they have very advanced air defense systems. We fly drones over Yemen, Yemen, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and they have no very little air defense capability. Okay. They're not stuck. So wait, the, um, someone Bill has brought up before, which I didn't really know about, but I've now read more about this week, is John Mearsheimer, who is seems to define a lot of hawkish policy. He's big in these uh these circles that make it seem like we're in a situation where where there is a zero-sum game going on and China's rise inevitably coincides with a decrease in American power because America has maintained worldwide hegemonic leadership and has become the regional hegemon in Asia. And these two things are incompatible. Is this a principle that we agree with? Who, who I, I find it scary kind of this idea because it 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 starts the conversation with an inevitable endpoint where there's going to be some sort of conflict i think mearsheimer's standpoint i think his starting standpoint is that the way the world actually works versus our ideals of what it should be is is pretty far i, I don't know too much about the history of warfare or anything like that, but if we just go to the the economic realm or the financial realm, we have all these ideals of either a gold standard or a uh, fiscal disciplined central banks, um, dreams of every country agreeing to limit their monetary supply, but these agreements break down incredibly easily whenever it becomes even minutely convenient for a country to take advantage of them. Um, it's, it's been extremely rare for um, these agreements to hold over time. So, so because of these, these things, what actually happens in reality is very far from our ideals of what the world, how the world should run. So Mearsheimer basically takes the other extreme and assumes the worst 
And what he assumes is that the, the primary goal for every nation state is to survive. And because of this, any time when your power is threatened, you have a reason to limit the, the powers of the other countries, either by bandwagoning onto a stronger state or by creating situations where it limits the power of your rivals. And on top of that, this is this makes Mearsheimer the most extreme. So some of these, they call it realism. Some of the realists say because of this, countries should up their defenses. Mearsheimer takes it a step further. He would say because of this, countries with superior power should strike first because during military conflicts, you gain a huge advantage when you strike first. Um, but unfortunately, what Mearsheimer claims is that historically, his model, this very simple game theoretic model, is 70% correct in explaining conflicts, which is the highest of all the international relation models. That seems like such a bleak way to look at the world. Yeah, I mean, he, that's, you know, that's his main criticism, but then he would tell you, unfortunately, that's reality. Got it. So he probably is like a Nietzschean. Yeah. I, I think, I think, I think within all of this, I think it's the, the reason why I think he's interesting in this conversation is because if, if, if we, if we take a few steps back and just talk about exactly where, what is the root of the conflict currently between China and the U.S., it's difficult for any, I think, for anyone to explain exactly how this started. Nothing that's been talked about on either side is is new, but it it, it sort of came up uh, very quickly in, in the recent couple of years, and it's it's difficult to explain the the timing and the reason for for this. Well, I mean, what's so crazy about this theory to me, especially watching Trump sort of enact it by. Mm -hmm taking the first economic swings at China is that we're, you know, we're weighing in at this fight at not our strongest time and we might get our ass whooped if this is the fight we're going to get into. So I don't, I don't understand that the, it has been really interesting to watch Trump put into effect these nationalistic isolationist policies and see what happens. I feel like for years people have wondered, oh, what will happen if we confront China more directly? Well, we're starting to see the solution, and it's crazy that Americans, we like Daryl Morey or whatever, we have these people that will tweet out pro-support for Hong Kong, but then when push comes to shove, it's not like we have any proactive ideas of how to resolve these conflicts. We we just talk about, we just blandly throw out aphorisms like, we want democracy around the world, as long as it's democracy for American interests. So I'm just curious, like, what what is America's goal here? What is the end game that we see? Considering China also makes everything we consume in this consumer-based economy. From that Larry Summers video, basically he doesn't have an idea where the, where he wants this to go. And I, I think, I, I mean, like that. I think this problem is is this problem of not knowing where we need to go is is kind of manifesting itself in, in various forms all over the world. If we're talking about human rights, do we do we even Within America, there is no central vision for for what the ideal America would look like. Is it education based? Is it based on healthcare? Is it based on political rights? Are are those things even compatible? It, it's not as clear as it seems um, a few decades ago. 
I don't think. And, and then, and then to project these views upon the world, I, I don't think any country in the world out there has has a very clear vision of what what the ideal future looks like. And then on top of that, you have problems of artificial intelligence, of global warming, all, all these things loom large. Salah, what do you? How how does that work? Working in human rights, like when when you're speaking with someone from a different country, is there a gap with their interpretation of what a right should be? And or is, do they think of Americans as hypocritical ever? Or is it sort of this, um, everyone's welcome for the input? You know, one of the most noticeable things of doing my job in the last uh, three years is uh, the perception that the sort of the looking to the U.S. as a, as a guidepost and uh, of a, a leader in human rights promotion is really crumbled and um, that kind of brand America of supporting human rights around the world and being um, you know a model for for countries around the world uh, in terms of human rights promotion and um, you know just uh, kind of rights-based uh, activities around the world is is falling apart and so as an as an American kind of preaching Human rights and business in in many different countries as part of my job has become extremely difficult to sort of sell the uh, uh, sell sort of the the reasons for the for the work that I do and and kind of the benefits of this of this globalized human rights system. And I think part of it is is kind of the, the retreat of the of, of the U.S. as a as a leader in this space. But I think another part of it is sort of uh, a, a retreat globally from a kind of an internationalist model to much more of a sort of a kind of a nationalist identity around the world. Um, you know, I think isolationism is not just unique to the U.S. I think we're seeing that that sort of behavior in a lot of countries around the world, and that has taken, you know, I think taking the wind out of the the sort of the the, the human rights agenda, which is very much uh, an internationalist approach that says. Uh, you know, the world is meant to be guided by these universal principles as opposed to something that's very um, sort of nationalist in, in thinking or nationalist in culture. Mm. Dan, what is, does uh, Biden have any stance on China? I haven't really heard him say anything this week. I think it's kind of like probably a middle ground of like less vacuous bluster and more like actual action but maybe like like if trump actually did anything it might be crazy and real and he won't start a biden wouldn't start a trade war but i think he would probably try to be a little tougher on maybe do you know kind of do some of the sanctions on senior officials or bar them or you know one of the things that hit, could hit closest to home is bar student visas for certain high red high um officials in the chinese government so their kids can't go to harvard something like that to kind of like, it's like cheeky, but might hit home. I don't know. But I, I would say he probably will like drop some of the trade war, but try to be a little more forceful on the political issues, especially around uh, uh, Western China. But I imagine, I imagine any sort of like, if, you know, any sort of democratic response is going to be a bit mealy mouth compared to, you know, our efforts in human rights promotion, maybe a decade ago. It's just, I think we, we don't have the position of power when it comes to China. I, I think exactly as Bill was saying, we don't know what we want out of the relationship, and I think we've we've, in, unfortunately, in many ways, kind of lost our motivation to be uh, to the protectors of these principles and these concepts around the world. 
I agree. All right, what do we think of TikTok? What is going to be the effect of? Because I find Wait. it a that. What? Go for it, Nick. Oh well, no. So there's a lot said. Um, I mean, folks, folks accuse Trump of being an isolationist. Folks accuse Trump of being a warmonger, and the the two are not. Uh, the two are different. Um, and <laughs> I personally think he kind of has a tendency to be be an isolationist. And I agree with Salah that again, like we, there is a retreat in in believing in these universal values and. And the belief that these universal values should be supported internationally. Um, I don't believe in this like relativism that somehow because we, you know, we we have our own social societal issues in our country. But that being said, nothing compares currently to like the the in- entire displacement of an entire population in Xinjiang being put into concentration camps, having their culture erased. You know, there's stories of of uh, party officials forcing Han Chinese people to like intermarry into Uyghur communities and like all sorts of weird social engineering that like really hasn't been seen since, you know, 1940s. And so it's, and, you know, I, I the, would disagree with that fact. Um, so, so you agree it's a fact or it's not, a, you, you don't think I it's would a fact? disagree with these policies being extreme to the point where they haven't been seen since the 1940s. I, th- I think compared to what happened in China after Say 1957. What's going That's on true. right now is actually yeah. quite benign. That's well, I just for, for a point compared to the Cultural <laughs> Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, which killed 60 million people. It, it just it, is, that's it mild. does. It just seems like it's a convenient time for it to become a big issue. It doesn't seem like the U.S. has a problem with dealing with other countries that commit atrocities. I mean, especially in places like the Middle East, it seems like we have we're bedfellows with a lot of people that do some pretty bad shit. Like, with, like name, like the Saudis. Which, which country, or, which regimes are you referring or the to? Is, the um, Israelis. Israelis. Uh, besides getting Iran, involved in getting, Iran, which one? Which other? Which other regimes besides the Saudis and other? Egypt. Israel. Yeah, but the Egyptians. I mean, these are. You and can then, criticize the Israeli government. There's, you know, there's things. There's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is is quite complicated and bloody but i don't think cc is putting millions of people into concentration camps also i i I don't think it's right to call them concentration camps Mm, that's what the like human rights watch that's what amnesty international i think yeah i i think i think i think well for for several reasons for several reasons i um I think concentration camps in English hold connotations that don't quite apply to the situation. It's it's not like millions of people are being put in gas chambers. Um, and the other fact is the, the Communist Party from day one have had these re-education camps. Several members of my own family have been to them. Though, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it's right, but... It, it, it's definitely not the same as concentration camps. I mean, they, they're they're not concentration camps in the sense that it's a death camp. But uh, I mean, you have reports of like uh, mass mass uh, birth control and sterilization. Is you know mass lack of freedom of movement. Uh, so whatever the terminology is, there's gross human rights violations taking place on a, on a I, I, I massive think in, scale. In, I think in this, in this, I mean, if if you go back to China, even in the '90s, people could not live leave their village. I, I mean, I, I I had to 
for me to leave my city growing up there, it's it's not an easy thing. Um, and then also birth control. I, China had the one child policy, right? Like like an entire generation of people who were forced to, you know, you, you can have one one kid, but the next one you have to get an abortion. I um, do think there is some level that this think, is also, I mean, the fact that this is targeted against a specific yeah. ethnic and religious community makes it, you know, even more problematic. I mean, I, I, I don't think none of the, I, I things, don't think, none of the think, things that you describe are... Are, are, are positive things. Those are those are human rights violations in and of themselves. But when you apply it and concentrate it on a particular ethnic and religious community that is a minority in China, it makes it makes it more problematic. I would say it makes it the the fact that it's done to the entire population historically doesn't make it as unique in that sense. It, it com- compared to say the way black people are treated in America, I mean, there are millions of black people that are locked up in prisons in America. For, but, but why the why the particular focus now on on Uyghurs as opposed to the entire population? Like why is the why is the government focused on this one community? I mean, well, who it knows, seems like who, who knows like, um, who knows whatever the historical reasons it's 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 just I, I think obviously I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but I think when these language when this type of language is used in the US, it, it causes certain level of sensations that make the situation seem not what it is. I was I mean, just as I was thinking about how it, you would imagine a conversation between let's just say like whatever, Xi Jinping and Trump about this issue. Like, oh, well, you've got the Uyghurs. I was, I thought, as Bill would say, like, wouldn't you in a foreign country then immediately throw back? Well, you have a certain form of not concentration camp, maybe, but a lot of your society is set up to re-educate people to behave in certain ways. And if you don't, they end up in prisons. And so I think that, like, although there is, it's very clear if you, it, on, like, if, if you've got drone video of people, like, all those people, they have video of people, you know, um, tied up on the ground and stuff. There's clearly bad shit happening. I don't think that's necessarily debatable. It just, to me, seems like it's a pretty convenient time in the rise of Trump for this to become a massive issue in the American. It just seems so convenient politically. This but it has, it, I mean, it hasn't really. It, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's been an issue on, like, the, the human rights community's radar for, for, for many years now. I, I wouldn't call it a big issue within the Trump administration. I didn't didn't he tell uh, Xi Jinping that you I, I support you in what you're doing. I mean, it, there hasn't been much of a like a flex in terms of U.S.-China relations to push back on this issue. Even I, I mean, I, Hong, Hong Kong as well. I don't see. I, I think if the, if this were if this were another administration, you'd see a lot more um, a lot more hand wringing over Hong Kong, especially. Well, I think, I, I don't know, it seems like some, that what's changed in the relationship has been Trump's just antagonism. That, that Before it was this seamless, all right, you're, you're going to make our stuff and we're going to sell it. But now when Trump comes in, it's like mm. a, a slow move. And now I find like, especially, I, I don't know, I find especially the NBA relationship. What, what is? What you're saying is that suddenly Trump, there's been a shift in how we view China. This has been going on since, sort of started in the Clinton administration, Bush and Obama. Obama had the Asia pivot. The specific reason for Obama's Asia pivot was to counter Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. So wait, did China declare tariffs on Chinese steel? Uh, The trade aspects were kept in place. So Obama did not use, rightfully, did not use tariffs as a weapon against China. But 
the military and diplomatic efforts were concentrated in, in Asia to counter Chinese expansion. Yeah, totally. The pivot to Asia, that's true. But I think uh, that... Again, I think the language that's used here is particular to American rhetoric. Um, the word expansion, um, that is not a word that is, that is spoken of in China. Well, I, what I see happening as 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 is um, expansion. As what I mean by that, there there isn't an official doctrine or or any rhetoric within China that is similar to something like um, that the Manifest Destiny, for example. Um, the, the what's defined as Chinese territory within the Communist Party since 1949 has been consistent. Uh, and I would, I mean, I would counter that to say that. Maybe, maybe that should be a, maybe that policy should change given the fact that China is antagonizing not just the United States, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, Vietnam, uh, and so on. And essentially the entire Asia Pacific region, other than Cambodia or Laos, which are kind of client states of China, have, have expressed fear that the Chinese military or Chinese diplomatic efforts in the region have sought to undermine their sovereignty. So it's I mean, not, that, this isn't just a U.S. rhetoric. This is a regional, regional I think, rhetoric. I think, well, I think the word expansion, again, the reason why I harp on the dialogue, it's not to apologize for what's going on or to justify. I, I think these situations are, are happening all the time. It's just that, you know, listening to Larry Summers, what he's saying is hoping for an opportunity to have a more constructive dialogue in terms of deciding what the goals are for next steps. And I think, you know, this these types of language really prevent that from happening. Because the minute that you use the word like expansion on the Chinese side, they're just going to fire back something. And, and, and it just prevents dialogue constructive dialogue from happening is that like what when they when they fired shots at the indian border patrol or like what there was a recent i mean there's a, on the indian the, border there's a disputed territory there but doesn't that kind of like ask beg the question that the government of china should kind of question itself it's saying that well i have aggressive i have tensions with essentially every single one of my neighbors. But all of those are U.S. allies well, with the United U.S. bases on a lot of them. Vietnam does not have a U.S. base. But, Malaysia yes. does not have a U.S. base. Yeah, but again... India does not have a U.S. base. Mongolia doesn't have a U.S. base. I mean, I can go on. It's just, I think that when Larry Summers brings up dialogue, I think the obstacle to peace and dialogue isn't necessarily U.S. behavior. I think it's the communist regime's behavior in china and i think that's what i think that's not a controversial statement i really think that every essentially but every I, country but, in the region but, would but, agree with but that again again I, I think that's that is the u.s attitude but that is also the chinese attitude towards the u.s i i think what what needs to happen actually is both sides give a step otherwise it's just going to be a, a continuous blame game that that gets more and more heated who knows what it'll turn into well, it just seems like Americans really want China to change its behaviors in certain ways and are trying to, like, make these incentivize changing their behavior through financial means. And it just hasn't worked. The situation has just gotten worse and worse. So I just don't understand 
sort of w- the way forward. It seems like it's every effort seems to have made the relationship deteriorate over the last whatever. I guess you're right. It has been longer than the, the Trump administration, but it feels like it has definitely amped up. I don't know this TikTok thing. I'm I'm interested to see how this unfolds. Just because it's it's very much so in Trump's wheelhouse you know he's very attuned to social media so i wonder what the reaction of the youth across the world will be ben you seem to to always know what's going on in tiktok do you have thoughts uh i mean i'm skeptical that it's actually going to happen i mean i think in the same exact setting two weeks ago trump said that we would be rolling out some kind of national insurance plan or a national replacement for obamacare and that certainly hasn't happened so it remains to be seen how serious they are. I think it'll be interesting to see the reaction as well, um, because I know Microsoft were like in advanced talks to buy TikTok. So what happens in that context would be interesting. Does the ban all of a sudden get dropped if Microsoft buys it? You know, to what extent is this Trump being pissy about teenagers ruining his rally in Tulsa uh, versus, you know, is this really a meaningful step in his further efforts towards reeling China in? I think, you know, all that remains to be seen. That said, I'm skeptical that the ban's going to happen in the first place. I don't know how the hell it would, they would enforce it. Maybe it's a good time to invest in VPN companies. Nick, I went, I've been meaning to ask you, who do you look up to more, uh, Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan? Steve Scalise. Good answer. Hmm. <laughs> Unequivocally. How do y'all feel about the reopening of the NBA season? Uh, it's been, I don't know. I, I think the atmosphere is generally pretty good, all things considered. I think it's like, certainly less awkward than baseball with like their cardboard cutouts and everything. And I feel like the crowd plays such a role in baseball. Like anytime there's a wide shot or, you know, there's music in the stands, that kind of thing. Otherwise it's just like pitch 30 seconds, pitch 30 seconds. And it's kind of boring to watch for me personally. Um, I mean, we'll see in terms of COVID, but I think the NBA is certainly having fewer issues than baseball. So I like the holograms. The fan holograms are cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. I think sometimes you're going a little over the top in the crowd noise, but I don't know. For me, like hearing the sounds of basketball, like the ball dribbling, sneakers squeaking, that kind of thing, um, that's not lost, at least. That's for sure. All right, what else? Salah, you want anything else we should talk about? Uh, reductions in, in refugee resettlement uh, numbers and relating back to your point on like the U.S. standing on, on human rights and being sort of a like a, a beacon of... of liberal democracy around the world uh, i mean are there sort of cultural connections between the two how does that impact the u.s's standing and, and perception you know in, in in places that are are hard hit um i'm curious to get people's opinion on what does that mean for our culture if we're not perceived as a as sort of a refuge i mean i personally think it's dangerous it seems especially this trump's aversion or whatever his his plans for canceling visas also seems particularly dangerous that that you're that Student you visas. are targeting yeah yeah you're targeting yeah. like people that are the that other countries are going to obviously try to recruit to their country yeah so it seems like it's 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 pretty dumb on a on like a moral level like obviously america has been built on taking in refugees just because of the goodness of our hearts supposedly but then also it just seems like our economy is based on immigrants coming and making contributions so it seems pretty stupid yeah it's not a, i don't think it's a goodness of our heart thing i think it's it's in our it's our, in our economic and social interest to take people in and there's a you know a history of 
you know, this this fresh blood that revives our economy, creates new businesses, creates new jobs. It's been nothing but a net positive for our country since its founding. And I think the the stat is like 50% of Fortune 500 companies are run by by CEOs that are immigrants. I mean, it's just astounding. Uh, and you know, the number of number of businesses in Silicon Valley that are started by by immigrants or the children of immigrants. I mean, this is this is in our benefit to keep these doors open and and keep this sort of fresh cycle of people that innovate and, and come with fresh ideas coming to this country. I feel I hope everyone agrees with that. I don't know if Nick does though. Well, I I do. I wholeheartedly agree. I think we need immigration to essentially fund our social security entitlement programs. Like we need immigration for a lot of economic sectors in our country. We are a country of immigrants and we like, yeah. I mean, I think we, we also do need to take a lot of steps forward when it comes to human rights and sort of a, a sort of societal compassion towards refugees, political refugees, asylum seekers. You know, so wait, that, Nick, are you are you a second generation immigrant? I always forget. I, I am. Yes, my mother was born in Egypt. You call yourself a second generation or a first generation? I guess that would be first generation. I call myself a first generation. Are, but you're you're born in in the U.S. or yeah, yeah, Syria? I was born I was born in the U.S. Yeah. What M- Michigan? Yeah, Detroit. Nice. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of Syrians. I'm my best friend, who's my successor at my old job on the Hill. He's Syrian American. He's from West Virginia, and I okay. learned that. They, his parents were doctors. They came over in the 80s and they resettled them because they're doctors in, in underserved communities. So there's like a Syrian diaspora in like West Virginia and kind of like random. If I were Syrian, I would probably go to Florida, which is more like <laughs> Syria, but not the messed that, up part of Florida, like I mean, the, that's, you know, Miami Beach. That's the medical system, right? <laughs> is that it's, it is, I mean, it's predominantly staffed now by especially family practice and, and the, like the, you know, the, the less sexy, uh, you know, specializations are staffed by immigrants, and they're they're ending up in these more rural communities or uh, the smaller smaller cities, second and third rate cities. And it's generally generally speaking, most of the medical professionals are not U.S. born people. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Detroit Detroit grew up uh, with a big Arab population because I mean, one uh, the car companies uh, sort of staffed them with people from Yemen back, you know. A long time ago and then brought in arab-speaking doctors from syria lebanon palestine to serve that growing community and sort of the history of of arab detroit interesting all right what else ben how's how's mariana's labor <laughs> uh i haven't checked on her since the start of the pod but things seem to be moving along probably will not be here next week and you're it's olivia right Is olivia yes second and so are you sure there's no chance that it's twins i keep telling you that there's a small chance that one baby can hide behind the other when you when you take the sonogram no there's a zero percent chance (laughs) you don't take obgyn advice from seth (laughs) those things are 3d now this this yeah this is why you move the wand around to get different angles what if the baby is like hiding no it's like like running around a kitchen table you know if she, okay, if there's a twin in there who's doing that already, then I'll be fine with it. Uh, ben, was your child immaculately conceived? No, unfortunately. Salacious. I mean, I I guess I don't strictly know that because I don't like it's. Yeah, how could, date, how could you? How could No, I'm pretty sure it was not. Is this the first time we've talked about sex on the podcast? Or have no, you guys you always about, want to talk I mean, about sex. If no, that's talking about men. sex, like you just basically alluded to its existence. Like you didn't really talk about anything. 
<laughs> it exists. It does. It's a GOP platform. It exists. Yeah, I don't know. Nick, it's hard it's hard to really get Nick to open up. He he seems to to want to talk about sex but really doesn't really know where to start. <laughs> That'd be the title of my like memoirs. <laughs> or like getting what is it? I told I told Ellie once, I was like, Well, the title of my first book would be Getting Fatter, Not Wiser. <laughs> That's pretty then, good. I don't know. Yeah, that sounds like, like a, everything like you want to know Jeff about Fox sex, but would write. what? <laughs> That sounds like the book title of, like, a Jeff Foxworthy stupid humor book. Like, <laughs> getting fatter, not wiser. A thousand redneck jokes by Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Nick, what do you think the uh, sexiest aircraft is? Uh, ooh. I would say the SR-71. That's like a Mach 3 plus spy plane. Go, like, super fast. What, do you, what, what would be, like, a cougar? Like, a sexy older woman... Uh, B-52. It's like an older airplane bomber. That's a good one. <laughs> Bill, I'm sorry for ganging up on you. I, I feel bad. My Ellie lectured me before last podcast, so that I, I get, like, my angry mode, or fired up mode. I become a... Yeah, I, I, no, it's okay. I think it's... I mean, it's all, it's, it's all fair points. I, 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 think, I think for me, I mean, I have family on both sides, so... It's it, it, it's kind of it, it feels very personal when when bad things are said on each side, um, and it's I mean it's it's just very unhelpful. Well, thank you for talking about it, both of you, everyone, because I to be honest, I feel like our world does get into these ruts where people just don't even want to talk. There's like just yeah. stereotypes and anger on all sides yeah. of things. It is tough to talk about, but I I, I think when I watched that Larry Summers video, um, I, I think I. You know, I, in the comments, a lot of people were, I think, pretty unhappy with what he said or calling him arrogant or whatever. But I, I think he was, I would commend him very much for being frank. I think he said what he meant to say and, and how he felt about the situation. And, and that's pretty rare, actually. Yeah, and I also recognize, like, this country, unfortunately, has an ugly side of racist, you know, it, it, any criticisms of the policies of a government shouldn't reflect upon its its people. You know, I, I, there, and, and I think a lot of ill-informed people in this country who have ignorant views tend to project those upon people of a certain ethnicity, a certain race, certain religion. And I, that, to me, is unacceptable. Yeah, especially when it's coming from the fucking president. Yeah, touche, yeah. Good old Trump. Well, so wait, wait, he, what are... Who is going to be the VP pick? I forgot to ask Dan that before he left. It's it's going to happen in like a couple of days, right? Everyone, they say so. it's Kamala Harris. Do y'all think it's Kamala Harris? I don't know. Yeah. I guess we'll find out in like a week or... Well, I thought you were going to bring up the, the fact that Trump tweeted about this doctor who was saying that you can get impregnated by witchcraft. <laughs> yes. And but, no, she was saying that like, uh, what was it? Endometriosis is caused by having sex with demons and stuff. Yeah. Demon sperm. Like, all yeah. these fucking people still going on about chloroquine it's just ridiculous it doesn't fucking do anything louis gohmert the dumbest member of congress <laughs> now taking hydroxychloroquine after sleeping in his fucking office telling all of his staff members in person hey i have the fucking coronavirus like <laughs> jesus christ how stupid yeah. can you get that's sad yeah um I, i'm seeing a lot of reversions of these conspiracy theories like the whole i people have i've started posting the whole um pedophile child stealing ring thing more oh, QAnon Osmopesis. that's the whole QAnon thing it's just ludicrous how do you Somebody... prevent 
demon sperm from being like you have to have a um one of those you have to have a magical a diaphragm. What are those? yeah diaphragm like an enchanted <laughs> diaphragm <laughs> holy water diaphragm <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you've gotten this far, then you probably enjoyed it and should do the nice thing and share it with your loved ones, friends, and even enemies. Thank you, Salah, Nick, and Bill for joining. And best wishes to Mariana. Can't wait for Olivia to get into what our point like all the cool kids. <laughs>